Hello there and welcome to episode number two of the Extraordinary Podcast, the second season. This is 2019, January 2019. My name is Tobias Dahlberg and in this episode, I have another extraordinary guest for you. It is none other than Chip Conley. If there's someone who doesn't know who Chip is, I'll tell you something that it says on his TED profile. He's been speaking at TED two times. And it says, Chip disrupted the hotel industry twice. In his mid-20s, he founded this company called Joie de Vivre, which was a boutique hotel chain and still is. And he grew that into 50 hotels over the next 26 years or so. And at the age of 52, after he was one of the central people who actually disrupted the hotel industry and, and started this boom of boutique hotels. He's one of those people who did that together with Ian Schrager and maybe someone else whose name I can't remember. But anyways, at 52, he was asked by Brian Chesky at Airbnb to come and join the company and to help them build a global hospitality company. And uh, not only did, was he asked to do that, he was also the in-house mentor to Brian Chesky himself. So he joined in 2013 as the head of global hospitality and strategy. He then later transitioned into slightly more passive role in 2017 as a strategic advisor for hospitality and leadership. So Chip has a new book out called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And it's a brilliant book. I really recommend it. Go on Amazon and buy it now. Uh, you won't regret it, I promise. So the idea... Uh, which Chip will be talking about in this episode, came to him when he realized that he was about twice the age of many other people at the company. And he realized that actually people that have experience are also needed in today's world. And also, they need to be learners themselves. And he gives you very practical tools for doing that. In addition to disrupting the hotel industry twice, He's also a board member at the celebrated arts festival Burning Man. This man, Chip Conley, is someone we can all learn from. I'm so grateful to have him on the show. And as you will realize, he's such a nice, humble, generous human being. So hope you enjoy the episode. And as always, I'm happy if you subscribe, leave a review, and most importantly, share it with someone who needs to hear these messages. Thanks again for listening. And here is Chip Conley. Hey, so uh, today I'm joined by none other than the legendary Chip Conley. Great to have you on the podcast. So happy to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Tobias. Uh, great to be in a sunny location here in Mexico and you know, while you're enjoying the darkness in Finland. Yeah, it's definitely dark over here. I have this big lamp in my studio that, that gives me some light. It's supposed to be you know, daylight Kelvins. Uh, that's my only, that's the only light I'm getting. It's pitch dark over here. But hey, um, I'm so happy. I've been excited about this for a long time already. I'm, I'm so glad that you took the time to, to be on the podcast. I thought um, since you have a new book out, and it's called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And we're going to jump into that. I, I first want to tell you how I came across you. I, I saw you speaking at the Nordic Business Forum. I think it was last year in Stockholm. And I, I really enjoyed your talk. I thought it was fantastic. And uh, then I saw when your book came out and you're talking about, 
you know, being an elder. And I thought, wow, this, this guy seems so youthful. And he looked, you know, very young. And, you know, he's, he's probably under 50. And uh, then I did some research. And I, of course, found out that in the beginning of the book, you really emphasized that being a modern elder is not about being an elderly person. So um, maybe if we start there, uh, why did you write the book and what is a modern elder? So uh, first of all, thank you. Um, and it was almost exactly a two years ago. It was a year ago or two years ago that I was there. I, I two years ago. <laughs> it could have been two um, years ago. Yeah. Yeah. All I know is that it was in January and mm -hmm. it was sort of a dark time to be there. But yeah. um, uh, I joined Airbnb almost six years ago uh, because one of the co-founders who's CEO, Brian Chesky, uh, wanted me to be his in-house mentor while also being the head of global hospitality and strategy. And Airbnb was a very small company at that time. Um, and no, no one in the company had a hospitality or travel background. And, and I was 52 years old. Um, let me say that again. Yeah. I was 52 years old, and I had zero experience in tech. So I, while I was a very seasoned veteran and entrepreneur in the hospitality and travel space um, and had been CEO of my own company for 24 years uh, and grew it into the second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S., I didn't know anything about technology. So I thought I was being brought in for my expertise, but I realized in my first week, oh my <laughs> gosh, this is like a whole new habitat that's not very natural for me. And I, I was twice the age of the average employee. I was 52. <clears throat> the average employee at Airbnb at that time was 26. And so I had to really learn a whole new industry and way of thinking and almost a new mindset, Yeah. Um, which, is not, which is not something people do in their 50s very often. Um, but it actually taught me that the modern elder, the traditional elder of the past was appreciated for their, they're almost revered. There's a reverence for them. But I think what the modern elder is all about is their relevance. How yeah. do you combine curiosity and having a fresh mind with wisdom and having some sage experience that you can call upon? And so that's why I, I believe a, a modern elder is as much a mentor as they are an intern. <clears throat> and that's what I've been for six years at Airbnb. Yeah. You also say... Uh, that, um, and this is a direct quote from your book, 60 may be the new 40 physically, but when it comes to power, 30 is the new 50. Now, what do you mean by yeah. that? <laughs> what I mean is in places like Silicon Valley or certain parts of Finland where there's a, you know, a, a, a relatively thriving tech community, um, what you see is that technology is uh, a playing field where the younger, the, the better you do. Typically, mm. so uh, si similar to athletics, similar to the, the energy industry in some ways, similar to fashion. Um, and so the playing field that uh, is most, the kind of people who are most ripe for this technology playing field are generally people who are younger, who have had a lot more experience with technology at a much younger uh, era of their life. No, I want to be clear, careful in saying that's a, that is an absolute generalization. Uh, and there are all kinds of people who don't fit that profile. But what it meant for me was, wow, I was in an environment where I had to learn from people who were two generations younger than me. Hmm. But what I didn't realize is how much they had to learn from me as well. They brought me in 
to be frankly, they brought me in for my knowledge. And what I came to realize is what they really appreciated was my wisdom. There's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. You structure the book around four lessons, which are evolve, learn, collaborate, and counsel. What what do those mean? Could you give us a, a short overview before we dive into those? Yeah. So what I found is that people in midlife, let's all, first of all define midlife. Midlife used to be defined as 45 to 65 or 40 to 60. Today, I would suggest 35 to 75. <laughs> yeah. Because are going to live longer and they're going to often work and people are going to um, they're going to actually start feeling irrelevant younger and in Silicon Valley people start feeling irrelevant around age 35 so what that means is that what happens in midlife well in midlife people tend to get very attached to history their own personal history and their identities and their titles and their business cards their historical knowledge and when they get that attached to history, there's no room for evolution. Mm. Uh, there's a, a, fam- a famous Zen parable about the, the Zen monk who kept pouring tea into this know-it-all's glass uh, cup. And he said, why do you keep pouring tea in there? It's because you're supposed to actually pour some tea out in order to have some new tea come in, which is another way of saying you need to actually evolve out of some of your historical identity in order to have a new identity come about. Mm. So evolving is the hardest of the four because mm. it forces you to, in essence, go through a rite of passage mm. from something you're familiar with to something you're less familiar with, which leads you to the second lesson, which is to learn. And for me, I had to learn the tech industry. If I was going to be successful with Airbnb, it was not because I had a lot of hospitality knowledge that was helpful. But what was really valuable is to make sure I understood the playing field and the habitat. And so I had to learn. And I think, you know, what's been proven is when people are lifelong learners, they live longer. So yeah. learning is almost like a life-affirming elixir. And then that leads you to lesson three, which is lesson three and four are actually more familiar for someone a little bit older. Collaborating is the third one. The older you get, the more emotional intelligence or EQ you, you gather. And that EQ serves you well in the form of and one of the things I saw at Airbnb was there the company is full of teams, but it was full of teams who were twenty five and thirty years old, and the people running a meeting had never run a meeting for you know twenty people or ten people at a time, didn't have any experience with that, were very competitive with each other, everyone was a know it all. And this is a gross generalization. Mm, sure. And having someone in the room who was a little older, not, not competing for the same jobs, helped to actually almost mellow out the competitive spirit in the room yeah. and the desire for everyone to be the smartest person in the room. And so that collaboration skill based upon EQ can be very valuable, which leads you to the fourth lesson, which is counsel. And counsel basically ta- taps into that idea that as the elder, as someone who's been around a little bit longer, you have the ability to listen to people and give good advice and counsel if people want it. The problem with a lot of people in midlife is they go to counsel first, yeah. meaning, meaning they want to just tell people this is the way it is in the world. And that's, that ends up make, making, makes them end up sounding like either a preacher or a parent, right. neither of which is the kind of person that a lot of younger people want to listen to. Yeah. And so, 
I think the key is the council happens after you've done the other th three things first. Right. So jumping into to the last one, you were talking about collaboration. Uh, sorry, that was number three, was it? Well, three, three, in any yeah. case, collaboration. So I think that there's a funny quote where you say that um, that connection, like uh, used to mean that you have an overstuffed Rolodex. And if for the people who don't know what that means, that's probably the same as having a lot of LinkedIn contacts or something like that right. today. But that's not really what the word connection means, that it's more about having the empathic capacity to resonate with others. And I thought that was a really good point and that this human gift is often lost. How do you think about that? There's a word of, called presence. The word presence to me means a lot when it comes to a world that is full of absence. You know, I've got, a, I've got an iPhone right here in my hand and quite often we have an iPhone right in front of our face, right. which means I can't see your face. And when I'm spending all of my time on my smartphone, I'm absent with the perspective of being able to be present for someone else and listen to them. Mm. I, I'm not saying pe people can't do two things at once. We can, for sure. But there's something about actually having someone give you that your attention on, with, with a full body listen. Yeah, it's like every cell of my body is listening to you right now, and I'm tapping into a lot of things. I'm actually seeing you. I'm using all of my senses. Uh, and I promise you, I'm not feeling you uh, in terms of like touching you. <laughs> yeah. But I am. I am saying the idea that I can use all of my senses and my intuition in a way to listen not just to your story, but for your story. Yeah. And that's a little bit of English language play there. Yeah. Whereas when you're listening to, to your story, you're listening literally to someone's story, trying to understand the specifics and the facts. Mm. When you're listening for someone's story, you're actually looking for themes and maybe blind spots. Right. And I think that one of the, part, one of the reasons that I had more than 100 people at Airbnb ask me to be their mentor wow. um, was because I was listening for their story. Right, and yeah. helping them see things and give insights that they wouldn't have had otherwise. But the thing that was beautiful about it, uh, Tobias, was that I was learning as much from them as they were, were from me. Yeah, that, that's, really, that's really something that maybe people don't think of because I think you kind of think of it as a sort of a cascade from above you know, to down. But nowadays, like you say, it's going both ways, really. Uh, one thing that I thought of when you when you spoke about that was was this idea that you talk about that what kind of modern elders can provide. I don't know, perhaps is this the main quality or not, but this idea of systems thinking, of rec seeing patterns and using your intuition to quickly arrive at, at, a, at a gut feeling for what is the right course of action or decision that young people typically haven't developed because they don't have the experience yet. Yeah, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about it is how the human brain develops over time. What we're very clear is some of your best learning is quite early in life. Mm. Uh, I'm learning how to, I'm learning Spanish right now. I wish I'd learned it when I was 12 years old. Hablamos I'm español. Mi español es muy malo. Pero tengo una casa in Mexico, so I better I better get better at it. Claro. Um, but the truth is that um, there are a lot of we have a lot of 
societal knowledge about what doesn't work with your brain as you get older. Yeah. Your memory isn't as good. Your, your um, ability to be quick slows down a little bit as well. Yeah. But the thing that actually gets better as you age is your ability to have holistic thinking. Hmm. And some brain scientists have called this four-wheel drive thinking. And it's four-wheel, it means that you can, you are operating and going from left brain to right brain quite effectively in a very agile kind of way. Right. And why, why is that helpful? Well, when someone can be integrating left brain and right brain simultaneously, it actually means that they are able to synthesize side things uh and get the gist of much more easily yeah the benefit of that is holistic thinking yeah and so this is this is something that you get better with 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 age which is one of the most uh, valued skills in in any sort of age group in working life in general today because we have so many big complex problems. I mean, that's what design thinking, one of the things that design thinking has made design thinking so popular, I think, is just this idea of of, of synthesizing information and using your intuition uh, to yep. arrive at solutions that you can't analyze your way to in a linear fashion. But to in order to have the intuition, I think you need to have experience. Um, but one thing which is almost like a paradox, I think, is that once you develop the sort of your own expertise and you form your own ideas... Isn't there also like then you also talk about having kind of a beginner's mind and isn't that kind of a rare quality for someone first to have the humility but also to have the ability to ask questions like like you talk about to really ask sort of beginner questions or or dumb questions I'm making air yeah. quotes here. That's something I talk about in the book is yeah. um I was surrounded by know-it-alls who were really great people and really brilliant but they were all very focused on being the best at, with the answers and not none of them were focused on who asked the most insightful questions right uh, pablo picasso long ago the artist said um computers are useless they only give you answers that, um, i so, love that i love that so much yeah and i think the idea of posing a a really illuminating and insightful question is a really helpful way for people to understand and reflect on something in a new and insightful way. And I, and this is what we called in, in the company being catalytically curious. Yeah. And when you're catalytically curious, you're helping other people understand things in new ways. And that was really part of my role at Airbnb. That reminds me of a question that you talk about in the book uh, that relates back to your own uh, 20, was it 24 or 26 years as an entrepreneur founder and CEO at the Joie de Vivre. How do you say it? I don't know. It must have yep. been a bit of a difficult name for you to pick, was it, in, in the U.S.? I mean, it's a great name, I think, and it embodies your thinking, I can tell. Yeah, thank you. Um, it was a terrible name in the United States, but it was just, you know, we turned out to be successful. And it's a beautiful name, I think. Yeah. It's now part of the Hyatt chain, but it's, um, it was beautiful in the sense that there are very few companies in the world whose mission is also the same as the name of the company. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. And so, um, but yes, hard to pronounce, hard to spell. Most people in the United States don't know what it means. Um, and there, therefore, it was, it was a challenging name. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I got off track a little bit there. I was going to talk about asking good questions. And you say in the book, you talk about uh, the favorite question 
that you like to go around asking people? Maybe you can share what that was and, and how you got that inspiration for it. You... I have many, many questions I like asking, but my favorite question to ask uh, a direct report who is reporting to me and who I'm trying to support to be successful is, how can I help support you do the best work of your life here at Airbnb or Joie de Vivre or whatever company I'm involved in? So how can I support you to do the best work of your life here? Why is that a good question? There's two parts to it. Number yeah. one, the first part's like obvious. Yeah. Suggest, you suggest your boss wants you to succeed. <laughs> wow, what, what a surprise. I mean, I, I know that seems so obvious, but the truth is many people feel like they think their boss wants them to fail. So the mm. fact that your boss is literally quite uh, ask you know quite simply asking you how can I support you right to also do the best work of your life that's another really important piece of it yeah I love because it. it's just, but here's the part that's really amazing about it it puts the responsibility in the lap of your direct report to report back on what they need because most of us as employees like to complain and feel victimized by our boss or the company. And then we say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible place to work and let me fill in all the reasons why. And when your boss says to you, what is it that you, how can I support you to do the best work of your life here at Airbnb? It, it then forces you as the employee to say, oh, wow, excuse me, shit. Yeah. I am, it's <laughs> my responsibility to say that, yeah, I need a, instead of a, a monthly meeting with you, I need a weekly meeting. Mm. Or my computer, my laptop computer is so slow. I need, a, I need like a, a, you know, an updated version. Or I want to go to a professional development workshop twice a year where I actually build new skills. These are the kinds of things <clears throat> that someone could say. And then you as the boss, your job is to figure out which of those you can actually, um, and the company can agree to. Yeah. And I guess another two, and two things came to mind. One is that you're actually implying that you're willing to serve people and kind of get out of their way. And also that you're probably qualifying whether people actually are there to do their life's best work. Have, has, is there anyone who's ever said that I'm not here to do my best work? <laughs> has that ever happened? That, that's very, that's exactly right. I mean, the, when someone, when I find someone has a trouble, trouble with that question, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a first sign like, you know, they may have trouble with it because it's such a shocking, simple question, but so beautiful that. No one, no boss has ever asked them that. That's fine. Don't, 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 don't judge the, your direct report for that. But they have not been able to come back and offer you some suggestions that would actually be the kind of habitat that would make it easier for them to do, do their best work. Then they're not taking the question seriously, nor maybe do they have the capacity to even know what they need. And if they don't know what they need, they may not be the right person for that job. Yeah. Fantastic. So we're talking about leadership and we're talking about kind of close to culture. And I, there are one, many questions I have that I want to ask you and I know people are curious about. Uh, one, uh, from a kind of a brand strategist point of view, one example that I've been using a lot is the Airbnb credo or mission or tagline of belonging anywhere. How would you say that that was like uh, built into the culture, and how did you use it to build culture? So let me tell you some of the origin of that. So I joined six years ago. The first month that I was there, we had an off-site retreat. We talked a little bit about 
what was it that made us different? And we did a little exercise, which I call, you know, what business are you in? Yeah. And what business, the way that exercise works is we have two of us. Let's say it's me and Brian. There were 12 of us at this workshop. So we had six groups of two and that we were all independently doing this in, in, in our own little groups without listening to each other. And so I might ask Brian, what business are we in, Brian? And Brian might say, well, we're in the home sharing business. And I would say, thank you, Brian. What business are we in? <laughs> and then the second time I ask it, he can't answer the same way. And so you do it five times and you do, and both parties do it. And what it got us to ultimately in that, that, that uh, leadership retreat was the clarity that we were in the belong anywhere business. And that was a differentiator for us versus, say, Marriott. Yeah. Marriott's in the lodging business. We're in the lodging business. We accommodate people. They accommodate people. But we're everywhere or anywhere. Mm. They aren't anywhere because, you know, there's lots of places that they can't be. Yeah. We have homes everywhere. Similarly, we're about belonging. Uh, Marriott would like to be about belonging, but they're about a bunch of other things, too. So belong anywhere became our two word mantra to define what we what we were as an organization then we started looking at how do we develop that um, within the company culturally uh do our core values and we at that time had six core values and then we distilled it down to four um do our core values represent belong anywhere then we looked at how do we interview new candidates we're bringing into the company then we looked at how do we um do annual reviews of people in terms of not just did they get their work done, but are they coming from a belong anywhere perspective? And what's, mm. what's the evidence of that? And then we looked at it from a marketing perspective and we started doing advertising that really spoke to that. Yeah. We start look, looking at how do we manage our hosts and help our hosts know that being belong anywhere is a key part of what the experience should be about. So can I say we're perfect at it? Not, not at all. Um, and the model we have with Airbnb is a complicated one because all those hosts around the world, over 5 million hosts, are, none of them are, are employees. Or, you know, there are a few Airbnb employees yeah. or hosts, but it's a tiny fraction of the total. And so we're asking people to do this who aren't our employees. And right. yet the average guest satisfaction with Airbnb hosts is now substantially higher than the hotel industry in terms of guest satisfaction with hotels. Yeah. So something worked along the way. Um, and that's what, part of why I wrote the book was to talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's such a beautiful idea. Thanks for sharing that story. I, I, I've been using it as an example many times, and I, I just think it's such nicely crafted because I can imagine, you know, you're also about community and, and really the, the thing you spoke about that a lot of your so-called employees are actually not employed by the company and how do you get them to connect to something bigger than than their own uh, room or their own um, their own home that they're sharing. Um, so another thing that uh, came to my mind was uh, something you talk about in the book was was how they asked you, Brian Chesky and the gang, how they the millennials asked you to come in and transform the company into a hospitality company. And you say that at the core of hospitality is the idea of respect. And then you talk about how you sort of used um how how you how you took respect and turned that into different habits can you talk a little bit about how you do that 
how do you how do you yeah how do you take a concept like respect and turn it into behaviors? You know, um, it was an interesting question because what I saw was we wanted to be a hospitality company, and then I saw at times employees were not all that hospitable to each other. Right, right. Yeah. So it, we had to start with how do you model the behavior? There's a famous quote from Gandhi about be the message. You know, my life is my message. Um, or be the change. He said, be the change and my life yeah. is my message. And so I guess I took a little bit of a Gandhian perspective on that. And, and so that meant um, respect to me can show up in very many ways. For example, starting a meeting on time, no matter who's in the room or not, was a way for me to respect the people who had shown up on time. So people started to get to understand that chip meetings start on time, which means that if it was a one-hour meeting, it didn't start five minutes late or 15 minutes late because a lot of meetings started 15 minutes late. And in fact, many of the meetings are 30-minute meetings. So if you have a 30-minute meeting that starts 15 minutes late, it either means, means you have a meeting that should be just called off or it means you're going to actually be late for your next meeting. <laughs> right. And that's yeah. what happened. And so it's, there's a, so there was that kind of respect. Okay, let's respect the clock and each other's time. Then there was the respect of people in the organization who were not as um, senior, uh, whether it's our, you know, the the people at the front desk or people, the security crew, mm. or the people who are food handlers who served us our lunches or our dinners because we have an in-house dining operation. And I think just showing that, showing the respect to them, it was also showing respect in the way of saying thank you to people. Um, and being really, uh, you know, a lot of managers get really good at catching people doing something wrong. Fewer of them are better at good at catching someone doing something right. And recognizing people for what they did right means a lot to people. Mm. And um, so for all those reasons, I tried to mirror that behavior uh, and help young managers and leaders understand that that's what makes for a great a great leader. And, yeah. and at times I even shifted it such that I said, we're not going to call ourselves leaders or managers anymore for the next month. We will only call ourselves role models. So mm -hmm. if we're saying we're having a leadership meeting, we're going to have a role model. meeting. And if you say we're looking to hire a new leader for this marketing function, we're, we're looking to hire a new role model for the marketing function. Um, and so the element that role model became synonymous with leader. And when people actually know that they're a role model, they tend to show up a little differently. Mm. Wow. That's powerful. So the wisdom that you accumulated, if we go back a little bit before the book and before Airbnb, it says you, you've spoken at TED at least twice. Uh, I see and in the, your TED profile it said where it says that you've disrupted the hotel industry twice. So how did you do that? And, and what was the, can you talk a little bit about the disruption that has happened in the industry and, and what was your, how did you do it? So the first disruption was when I was 26 years old and I could see in the US, you know, Europe has had a, a, a rich tradition and history of small independent hotels that are often called boutique hotels. Yeah. The boutique, boutique hotel is sort of the modern spin on it because it's usually a little more stylish and yeah. a little bit more modern. 
Um, but the U.S. doesn't have as much of a history with that. So in the mid-1980s, when I was in my mid-20s, age-wise, I could see a lot of people were coming to, see, to, to stay with me in San Francisco. And I saw that they were not staying in hotels, which got me curious about how could we create some boutique hotels that were affordable and fun and appropriate for a younger crowd. And that's when I started Joie de Vivre, soon after two other um, disruptors, uh, Ian Schrager and Bill Kimpton, started their companies. And so I was a disruptor in my mid-20s of the hospitality industry, but then I became a disruptor again at age 52. Strangely enough, yeah. uh, du double my age, and suddenly I was a disruptor again. But this time uh, I was being the Airbnb founders uh, in my role, um, and so I was sort of a not the pioneer as much as I was this modern elder role, helping support these pioneers. Yeah, and you also talk in the book about the which I thought was very kind of interesting and and also bold of you to talk about the kind of ego issue a little bit about having to step aside from being at the center of the limelight and and taking a role as more of an advisor or a guide. And uh, is that what inspired you to 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 come up with this whole term, or uh, or how did that come about? Well, what I needed to, I, when I when I joined Airbnb and I realized, oh my gosh, I am surrounded by all these young people. Who's done this before? <laughs> who's been in the Who's been in a role? And I really had a hard time finding anything, any articles, any any, any um, books, or even a term to describe what I was doing. And over time, I started to think about it. And then one of the, the co-founders of the Airbnb once called me a modern elder. He said, like, you're an elder, but in a modern way. Because oh. um, you're not just the person we look to, like, for historical reference points. You're the person who helps us understand how things have been done, but is curious in a new way. And so you're both, you know, the curious one as well as the wise one at the same time. And the and the curiosity sort of opens up possibilities, and the wisdom distills it down to what's essential. Mm. So curio curiosity and wisdom together are a very powerful combination, because one opens up, and the other one, in essence, edits down. Yeah. Uh, right. Go ahead. Now I was just thinking when you said that that that's I think how you end the book. If I if I understand it correctly, you talk about that being a modern elder is about reciprocity, that it's about giving and receiving and teaching and learning and speaking and listening. So again, it's like those two opposite ends that you're pulling from in a way, the curiosity and the wisdom. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I did, I did. Is there a question? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> there wasn't really a question. But, uh, it was just an interpretation. It was. I was synthesizing with my... <laughs> mid 40s brain not yet the modern elder yeah. yeah so toward the end of the book you talk about the time when you then stepped down from your operational role at Airbnb and you I think you were at a three day event and they asked you to deliver a speech and uh, and there's this beautiful quote that you used can you please share that story with us so I yes in the speech it was you know all of Airbnb's employees at that time which were 3,000 employees in 22 offices around the world in January of 2017, they were all coming together because every couple of years we have uh, uh, all of them come together and, and do a four-day sort of intensive on like the culture of the company and where is it going. So on the very last night, 
which was just three days before I was leaving the company in an operating role and moving into a consulting role instead, I had the opportunity to give this talk. And I, I had everything planned for what I was going to say. But when I got up to go on stage to give the talk, the 3,000 young people all gave me a standing ovation. Wow. And I wasn't expecting that. So I got teary-eyed and I just sort of said, work is love made visible, which is a famous quote from Khalil Gibran in his book, The Prophet. Um, and the, pro the prophet is spelled P-R-O-P-H-E-T, not P-R-O-F-I-T, uh, <laughs> as is typical in the business world. And yeah. so I really started with that to sort of say, you know what, what's, we've, what we've created here is um, you know, a real sense of we're in this together. Mm. Um, but then I also gave them some cautionary notes about I think what the company needed to consider and what, what um, leaders in the company needed to consider and everybody needed to consider. And so it was a beautiful opportunity for me right at the end of my four years to be able to, in essence, have a graduation ceremony and give a commencement address, but I was the one graduating. <laughs> um, so it was beautiful. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, um, I want to be respectful of your time and, and uh, we're coming to toward the end. And I, I still want to ask you, like, you've had such a successful career and you've been an entrepreneur for most of your life and you had this wonderful experience with Airbnb. And now you, uh, you also set up uh, the Modern Elder Academy in, in Baja, where you're currently at, which I'm very jealous of, I might add. Uh, but what, what are maybe some of the keys to, I shouldn't say success maybe, but like fulfillment in your mind, in, in, you know, to have a career which you're really happy with? What for you are the keys to that? Um, I think the most essential thing is to understand what it is that you're on this planet to, to offer. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain once said, there are two very important days in the lifetime of all of us uh, that you need to remember. And one is the day you were born, and the other is understanding why you were born. Oh. The, the, the question of why, the question of what is it that I bring to this earth and to this civilization or to this community or this even just this family that's going to make a difference. And so getting clear about what it is that you're really well suited to do and then creating the habitat or finding a habitat where you can do that well is so, um, I think, core to what we've seen for those people who've been successful in their life. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, if you haven't figured that out by age 40, it doesn't mean you, you're not going to figure it out, but it does mean you need to start doing a better job of editing your life to seeing what you're a master at or what could you be a master at. Hmm. So that earlier question we talked about, what business are you in? The question each of us should ask is, what mastery can I offer? Mm, or what mastery do I offer? And do that exercise with a friend and ask, ask them to ask the question five, five times. Yeah. And you, can't, and you can't answer the same way twice. Wow. Let's see what you distill down to what's the essence of what makes you a different person on this planet. Wow, that's so powerful. And so now that you've reached mid-career... Uh, and maybe closer to midlife. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, what What is it for you? What is it? How? What are you thinking about your own mission? For my, for me, the legacy is this mid, this um, the world's first midlife wisdom school, which we call the Modern Elder Academy. 
And it's the idea that if, if, if midlife has become a marathon, if midlife has become a marathon, how, how do we help people figure out their wisdom, figure out how to reframe what they've learned in their mm. mindset in a way that it helps support them to be as successful and effective in the world as they can be. Yeah. So rewiring, not retiring, as you say in the book. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, this has been a true privilege. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I, everyone, I Thank really, you. really uh, suggest you get the book and read it. There was so much wisdom for me. And I'm ever so grateful for having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Chip. Thank you, Tobias. I've enjoyed it. And I wish you all the best. Thank you.